I invite you now to go to Exodus chapter 3, where we'll read uh, the third chapter of Exodus in its entirety. It's 22 verses. If you're using one of the uh, Bibles on the bench in front of you, this is on page 43 of your Bible. Uh, If you brought your own Bible, it's the second book of the Bible. Uh, And we're continuing in the story of Moses, a long time ago, but one of the, for me, the amazing things about Scripture is that even though we're reading stories that happened thousands and thousands of years ago, uh, because they tell truthful stories about real human characters, we find so much ability to relate and connect to them, uh, even now, because so much of what they struggled with, we still struggle with uh, as human beings trying to make our way in this world. This is Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out, up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this will be a sign for you, for I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what's been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us now. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. 
After that, he will let you go. And I will give, you, give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. And so you shall plunder the Egyptians. And that'll conclude our reading for today. Where we left off last week was that the Pharaoh who would have known of Moses' crime and would have been seeking after him to punish him for what he had done to a servant uh, of Egypt uh, had died. And so there wasn't an immediate fear now uh, on the part of Moses for the Pharaoh that would have known about him. And in that passing of that Pharaoh and a new uh, leadership coming into power, it said that God remembered the covenant that he made with his people and that he saw the affliction that they were going, uh, enduring. And so now we pick it up and Moses, uh, from everything we can tell, has just moved on with life in a different place. He had to flee, he had to run. Uh, he is now married, he has children, uh, he has uh, work to keep him otherwise occupied. And uh, we don't encounter whether or not uh, he's been praying at this point, sort of what the desires of his heart are. Is Was he longing to go back or is he fairly well settled in sort of the new life that's been provided for him. Because when we encounter him, he's just doing an ordinary day, day's work. Uh, he's tending now the flock uh, in, of the family that he has married into and takes them up to a certain point of a mountain, which is called the mountain of God, and we don't know exactly why at this point it already has that name, but there is a sense that it doesn't simply become the mountain of God in the future when things happen, but already has a reputation uh, among the people of that day as a significant location, but it's there uh, that Moses encounters God. And again, we don't know what prayers he might have offered before if he ever asked for signs from God, but something now happens that he can't deny or ignore. And sometimes when we read back on miraculous events, we can kind of read about them and say, one, we'd love to see those kind of things happen in our day. They sound pretty cool. Uh, but sometimes we also wonder, you know, did that really, could something like that have really happened? And throughout Scripture, whenever it talks about these sort of dramatic moments where God shows up or intervenes, one of the ways that we as uh, believers uh, look at the Scripture and say, we see a truthfulness here is almost always there's a reaction on the part of the people that is very similar to how you and I would react. Like, they freak out. Uh, like you and I might. And so the most common phrase, almost any time there's an angelic appearance is, hey, fear not, relax, like, it's, it's gonna be okay. And as they encounter it more, even not only a sense of fear, but even a sense, as we see from Moses, of shame. Like, if this is real... I don't know what to do with it, and I know I'm just a human being. Like, I know I have faults and sins and struggles, and so if the real living God is going to show up in a unique way, uh, we see these people have what is otherwise an incredibly ordinary human response to it that you and I would have. And their willingness to sort of share that with us is what for many of us says, this doesn't sound like somebody making something up. Because if they wanted to make themselves look better, 
they usually take a pass on doing that. <laughs> and they're usually completely honest about how afraid they become or ashamed they become whenever they encounter God in these unique ways. But Moses sees first uh, a bush that there's a flame around it, it's on fire, and yet it's not being consumed. And he's drawn to that. One of the last times uh, so far in Scripture that we have a description of a flaming anything is a flaming sword guarding the tree of life once Adam and Eve have been uh, expelled from the Garden of Eden. And here, Moses is seeing uh, something that has this beautiful flame to it. It's not being consumed, and he's drawn by it, and then eventually he hears a voice call out. And to say his own name and to repeat it, Moses, Moses, and his response is, here I am. And then he's told immediately, now, pause, take off your feet, for where you're standing is holy ground. But this, uh, there's just a few phrases that stand out to me in this chapter that sort of frame the message this morning. And the first one is Moses' response to say, here I am. Um, as he's drawn to the light and he hears a voice, his response is initially uh, to say, yeah, it's me and here I am. Because earlier in scripture when it says that God was looking for someone in Adam and trying to find him in the cool of the day, we didn't get a response from Adam that said, here I am. He was already off hiding when God was looking for him. Moses, in this instance, is just going about a day's work. He hears a voice, he sees the light, and he responds immediately with an openness to say, here I am. If you know my name, <laughs> I will respond and say, yes, it's me, and here I am. And one of the things that we learn early on is this place is holy ground, not necessarily because of something special about this mountain, but because it is where God chooses to encounter him. Um, one writer who I like to follow put it well this way. He said, uh, holiness is not the way to Jesus. Jesus is the way to holiness. And we confuse that time and time again. Like This becomes holy ground because it's where he shows up and says, I'm going to have a conversation with you right now. And if God's trying to have a conversation with you on a Tuesday at 9 a.m. when you're taking care of your kids or you're trying to manage payroll or you're trying to make a sales call or whatever it is, like that's holy ground. That's where he's meeting you and encountering you. The whole earth is his. There isn't just some special holiness about being in a sanctuary that, yes, is unique, and many times God does unique things within it when people gather together and sing his praise, but he's just as much with us wherever we go and whatever we're doing, and if we're open to it, able to encounter us in all of those places. And would we then say, like Moses did, okay, here I am. You have my attention. That could not have gone any worse. What are you trying to say to me, God? Uh, I, I'm really struggling here. I need your help. Wherever you find yourself in that moment, do you and I believe that we can respond to him and that he can speak to us, that our limitations are not his limitations? It can be in the car driving. It can be in the quietness uh, of our own homes. Uh, it can be from the voice of someone we love 
who's trying to get through to us that we need to take seriously the warnings that they are telling us about the way we're living. And all of those can be ways in which God is seeking to encounter us if we can say, here I am. And it's holy ground as God speaks to him and Moses listens. And Moses, like I said, he's human. And eventually he gets to the, okay, I shouldn't be looking right now. <laughs> like this is, if, as he's starting to realize who this really is and what's about to take place, he knows he's a sinner. He knows that there are things uh, that he would otherwise want to hide from uh, and back away now in his bold stance of saying, or just openness to say, here I am. And so then as God explains to him that he has a plan, he's going to take Moses and use him to go back to Egypt and bring the whole nation back to the very spot that this encounter is happening. The here I am becomes, who am I? Like Initially, it's a just, I heard my name and here I am. And as Moses is hearing more, it now switches to, what? Who am, who am I that you would want me to now represent you to the new Pharaoh, whoever the new Pharaoh is, and say to that Pharaoh that all of those people upon whom so much of the Egyptian economy would have been dependent upon in their slave labor, he has to let free. And, and rightly, he has the sense of like, who am I? That you would want, maybe there's a new Pharaoh in charge, but still, that you would ask me to do something like that. Moses is honest with his sense of inadequacy as he begins to understand more fully what it is that God wants to do. And I don't know, Moses, like I said, uh, is, is a thoroughly human character. He might have had an, an experience like I did earlier this week. It's fun sometimes when you overhear conversations that your kids are having about you that they don't think, uh, therefore, you're hearing uh, them have about you. Or in any situation, whenever you kind of overhear uh, someone, uh, you might get a little bit more of a window into the truth than how they might save face if they're talking directly to you. But my uh, oldest was talking to uh, our middle one, so Levi was saying to Joshua, and I'm just over here, and you know, Dad, he is the tallest person in our house. He's also the biggest person in our house. And he is at least the third smartest person in our house. <laughs> now, some of you might not know, but I am one of only two people older than nine years old in my house. So my safe position as at least the third smartest person is not much to brag about. And it was a good moment to bring me down a little bit and say, I know he thinks his mommy's number one. I'm wondering who's in play for number two. Like, who's my competition for number two uh, that he is wondering? And at this point, Moses is married with kids, and part of his who am I is, yeah, he's a human being. He knows he's not perfect. He's already made mistakes. He's committed a crime that he's had to flee from. Um, all kinds of conversations that he could have overheard to say, I don't. God, really, you think me, that I should be the one who would go to what you're asking me to do? But in the same vein, just like God makes the mountain itself holy as he chooses to encounter Moses there, what God is reiterating to him is that 
No, God is not now going to take a whole bunch of time to say, oh, Moses, let me just tell you how special you are. Let me tell you how smart you are and how strong you are. Uh, God's response to Moses' hesitancy is not going to be to puff him up, but to remind him of who he is, to say, I am the God of your father. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and these are my people. What you need to know is not who you are, but who I am, and that I'm calling you to do this. And isn't it a wonder that God would choose uh, of all the peoples on the planet? Because we get there's Egyptians, there's Canaanites, Jebusites, uh, varieties of groups of people that we don't know much about. But what we know about Israel is that they're enslaved. And that God would look down and say, those are my people. Like the ones who you know have no rights, no authority, no privilege, no power. I'm putting my name on them and saying, they're mine. We like to brag about things when we do really well in a test or we accomplish some big uh, feat of, uh, of athletics or something, and then we might say, hey, I know that person. Like, yeah, no, I think we're cousins or something. And we like to identify ourselves with people when we think identifying ourselves with them makes us bigger than we are. Here's the God of the universe who owns it all. And he has no embarrassment, no shame, no hesitancy to identify himself with his people when they are on as bottom as they can be of the totem pole in human civilization. What, what a God that he would do that. And so even Moses' sense of who am I is, uh, is reminiscent, of, if you will, or uh, it's even larger for the whole people. Like, God, who, who are we that you would come and do something for us? And so what God is communicating to Moses through this dramatic experience is that he loves them, that they are his people, that their value doesn't change simply because at this moment they are not experiencing life as anyone would attend it on the earth. God desires and longs for them to experience life differently, to have freedom. That's why he's about to act. But the fact that they've become enslaved and are now oppressed doesn't make God embarrassed of them or any less loving or desiring of them. And that's a wonderful and beautiful thing. Because we wonder that about each other, right? Like, hey, will you love me no matter what? <laughs> like, will you love me even when things get really hard or things get really bad? Or uh, will you love me if I actually need to borrow money from you sometime because I made a really stupid decision? Like, we can get along well when most things are going well, and it becomes a whole other level of challenge when life becomes difficult. And then say, how many friends do I have now? <laughs> how many people do just love me for me uh, and love me in spite of whatever struggles I might have. And so then the last phrase that stands out here is when God finally says who he is, he says, I am who I am. Moses asks the question, if I go and the people say, okay, who, who sent you on this? Like, if Moses can overcome the burden and, uh, of his hesitancy to go, if he really goes and they ask, who sent me? God says, tell them this. Uh, tell them that I am who I am and that I am has sent you which I submit to you if you go and grab 10 study Bibles and 10 commentaries and read people's opinions on what I am, who I am means, you'll see a lot of diversity 
uh, of thought on exactly what it means. And that's the whole point. Like God is saying to Moses, I will be everything my people need me to be. Will I save them? Yes, but I'm not stopping there. I'm going to teach them. Will I provide for them in the wilderness? Yeah, I can do that too. Will I instruct them with my law? Yes, I'll do that too. So if we just knew him as just the lawgiver or just the provider or just the redeemer, he's saying, no, I'm God is basically what it's saying. God is God. And everything that is true and right about him will be then available for his people because he loves them. And so at least two ideas come out uh, as you try to study it more which is that God is good and that God is great. That he is great. He is powerful. He is the I am. No one made him. He made all of us. There's nothing greater than him. All of us submit to him. All of us will one day stand in judgment before him. He stands in judgment before no one. He is God. But at that very same time, when we understand that that's true, we realize, so he doesn't have to save us. He doesn't have to work through Moses. He could just make another people. He could just create another world. And he's saying he's not going to do that. He's going to use Moses. He's going to redeem his people. He is going to bring his greatness to bear upon them. And through his goodness, he's going to set them free. And therefore, when people say, what are you going to do when he sets you free? Well, we're going to worship him. We are going to be the people who worship the true and living God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all of its promises. And we're amazed at the revelation of how truly great and glorious you are. That you're the only one who has power within and of yourself to create. That you don't need food or water or shelter or clothing. And in all of that uh, grandeur and glory, that you would be willing to encounter someone like Moses uh, on, for him, just an ordinary day that you would actually hear the groanings and the cries and the afflictions of your people longing to be set free from injustice and oppression. When you could choose to listen to so many other things, we thank you that you are the one who cares, and not, not simply knows, but cares about the pain of this world. And we thank you for being willing to, in our, when we are unable to save ourselves, to be the one who is willing to create a path of salvation for each and every one of us. We thank you for that, and we pray that you would help us to live our lives in a joyful surrender to you and your purposes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.